Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Welcome to Women on the Line, a national women's current affairs program produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne on Wondery Country of the Kulin Nations and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Aoife Cook. It's been a tumultuous few weeks for the Catholic Church, both globally and in Australia. Cardinal Pell has been convicted for child sex abuse. The influence of the global rise of the hashtag MeToo campaigns against sexual harassment and assault have spawned a new and perhaps unlikely iteration in the fledgling Nuns Too movement. At the same time as the Catholic hierarchy hosts a global summit on child sex abuse, a step in the right direction for some, but too little, too late for many. To help us navigate all this, my guest on this week's Women on the Line is Dr. Kathleen McPhillips a leader with the Interdisciplinary Trauma Research Network and the Vice President of the Australian Association for the Study of Religion. Kat was raised a Catholic and spent many years volunteering and working with the Church. She considers herself an insider researcher in her current work with the School of Humanities and Social Science at the University of Newcastle. What is it about the Catholic Church and how it's organised that has led to this lack of accountability? I mean, that's the big question that we're all sort of trying to answer in our research is um, the specifics of this. And um, it is, uh, it's complex, the answer. So institutionally, um, the church is a particular mix of, it's it's very hierarchical. Power is arranged um, largely in the hands of a white male oligarchy with the Pope at the top who has, supreme power, so it, it is a bit like a monarchy. Um, it's also, it has its own religious law called canon law, um, which is very complex. Very few people understand it. Um, um, very few, you know, religious, let alone lay people, study it. And um, and that law has, it's, it's kind of been very obfuscating, and, but used a great success, I think, in um, really um, just um, not not allowing um, any kind of transparency to be visible. So that's the other thing is that um, the church is organising what is called dioceses and archdioceses, and in a diocese, which is a sort of geographical area, the bishop has a lot of power to arrange things the way that he wants to arrange it. Um, and he's a kind of like he's almost a semi, semi-independent monarch himself. They're called princes of the church for a reason, mm-hmm. because they are sort of princes in their own right. And there just has been um, a culture of no transparency, no accountability, and no responsibility. Uh, and that has led to, when, when you put that together with the status and power of the priest, um, which isn't only just an institutional power, it's also a spiritual power. So the priest is understood as someone who has this kind of 
ontological status of somewhere between man and God and is often seen as the representative of God on earth. So that that is an incredibly um, influential and powerful position. Speak to Catholics, you know, they'll say, oh, look, you know, there's no way I could have gone to Father and said this and never would have believed me. And that's exactly what happens to the children who are abused. Um, they were so, you know, that, that they were so overwhelmed by um, the status of the priest. There was no way that they felt they would have been believed if, if they had disclosed. I joined Religious Life when I was 19. And at that moment, as any young sister, I was following an ideal the ideal of utmost selflessness, of self-giving. I was ready to follow Christ wherever he would lead me. So that when, when my superiors told me the way to perfection consisted in obeying their orders, even when I did not understand them, when they told me not to read books, not to speak with my fellow sisters about personal matters, not to contact my family without permission, when they told me not to ask any questions about my future, when they told me always to smile, I trusted them. And it, and it destroyed me. I lost my self-confidence. I became insecure. I became apathetic. And despite the, 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 the smile on my lips, I had tears run over my face whenever I was alone for a minute or two. And still, I fancied this was a spiritual privilege, the dark night of the soul or something. But it wasn't. It was purely and simply the consequence of the spiritual abuse I had suffered at the hands of my superiors. And in hindsight, this is so obvious. But at that moment, I was unable to grasp it. Five years after I had joined, and only some months after I had solemnly professed vows here in Rome, the male superior of the house came into my room and raped me. And when he came in and began to undress me, the only thing I was able to, to say was, you are not allowed to do this. That obviously didn't help at all. And instantly I knew whosoever I would ever speak about this in the community would blame me and not him. And so I kept silent. I got up the next morning, got dressed, went to the chapel, prayed, went to the kitchen and worked. I never talked to anybody and always smiled because I had been told to do so. Until 2010, when there were all those headlines about sexual abuse in the newspapers, and I understood, unless victims speak out, the abuse just goes on forever. So I pulled myself together, or rather what was left of myself, which was not much. And I went up to my superior and told her the male superior of the house had, had raped me two years earlier. You know, and, and she became furious. She was jumping to her feet, she was shouting at me. She was, she was like crazy, you know. And she did not understand, she refused to understand. Her first question was, did you use contraceptives? <laughs> she did not, she pretended not to understand at all that I was actually speaking of rape. So eventually she calmed down and she forgave me. Which meant 
there were no consequences at all. Not for me, not for my perpetrator, nothing. And this priest is to this day a member of the community, living in a house together with many other young, young sisters. That was Doris Wagner, a German theologian, recalling her terror as a young woman in a mixed-gender religious order. Women on the line. Across Europe in the 1990s and into the 2000s, uh, and the US, um, groups of women got together and they decided that they weren't going to wait for the Catholic Church to allow women to be ordained. They were going to ordain themselves. And in the US, for example, a couple of bishops came on board and the women, a group of women went through uh, a process of training and then the bishops ordained them. And the same thing happened in Europe. And when the Vatican heard about that, it immediately excommunicated all those women and the bishops that had done that. And just um, just for people who so, mightn't be aware, what does excommunication mean? So excommunication mean? Is, is basically we get kicked out of the Catholic Church mm. and you're no longer considered a Catholic and you can't, um, you can't partake of, of any of the rituals, of the sacraments of the church or the community life. I mean, it's absolutely shattering. But on the other hand, there is not one case I know of, not one, where a clerical sexual offender of children has been excommunicated. The so hypocrisy none, in of the the, none of the men have been excommunicated, mm. and most of them have not even been what we call laicized or defrocked, which is, which is um, a far lesser sort of punishment, I suppose, than excommunication. So defrocking is where the ordination rights um, of the priest are taken away from them and they cannot, they cannot act as a priest anymore. But they're still a member of the Catholic Church and they can still, they still have access to all the sort of rites and rituals of the Catholic Church and they can call themselves a Catholic. So the need to look at gender is so ob- obvious from the hypocrisy that you're speaking about now. And I know that's a particular focus of your work, that even with the um, child sex abuse revelations and more recently the revelations of sex abuse around nuns and other Catholic women, um, mm. gender isn't always a focus, but this is where how you're trying to pull it together. Can you speak a bit more about that? Well, in my research, what I've found is that gender is... is probably the most central factor here. I mean, when you look at the Catholic Church, it is A, organised in terms of a gender hierarchy. So the clerical hierarchy is all male. And even when you step back and look at the organisation of the diocese, most of the positions um, of any kind of meaning or power are held by men. Um, And that's reiterated in the law, in canon law, um, and even when it, even where it isn't, where there are positions that women can hold, uh, that's kind of rare to, to see women um, um, being appointed. And um, not so. So there's that factor. So it's mostly women um, lack access to to pathways towards um, positions of responsibility and governance in the church. Um, and then also um, there's a question of sexuality. I mean, for decades 
24th century, the church has had this very pathological view of sexuality um, and, and also of the body, a sort of rejection of the body and of the sexual body in particular. Um, and I, I think a lot of people would be kind of familiar with this idea that, um, that sex is bad and that there's a sort of um, very conservative um, approach to, um, well, to, to um, state marriage. Um, marriage between a man and a woman mm. and all of this is underpinned by its theology so the theology or the, the ideas about faith and God and, and the relationship between God and, and people is all sort of bound up in this um, notion of a gender hierarchy and framework which positions women um, as primarily mothers that's their role in the church, to be mothers and guardians of the faith, and um, men as sort of active. So uh, a really sort of um, a dominant sort of um, understanding of, of a Catholic woman would be, you know, a woman who goes to Mass on Sunday, who's quite devout, who prays, um, and who's a mother. And that is what is rewarded. So... Um, that is just so out of step with current ideas about gender, practices about gender and laws about gender. And as you probably know, um, when the same-sex referendum was being held, the Catholic Church was one of those groups that um, was against the referendum. Mm. Of course, it was really interesting that the statistics on the referendum showed that the Catholics actually, most of them voted in favour of the referendum and have quite liberal views. Um, they support um, gay students in schools, for example, and um, they often support more generally homosexuality. So it's just um, the, the hierarchy of the church, its history and its laws are totally out of step with how ordinary Catholics actually think and feel about... Um, about sexuality and gender. Across Australia, you are listening to Women on the Line on the Community Radio Network. Next, we hear from Virginia Saldana, a leader and activist and the secretary of the Indian Women's Theologians Forum and Ecclesia of Women in Asia, speaking for Voices of Faith at a press conference in the run-up to the Vatican Summit on Sex Abuse. What enables abuse in the church? Abuse has thrived in the church because a culture has enabled that abuse. Even though priests' actions are crimes under state law, the church downplays the crime and calls it a mistake or an indiscretion. A priest mediates God to his victims and wields power of divine authority. He can manipulate his position to get access and to abuse his victims. Catholics are trained to see priests as one who stands in the place of God. So in the eyes of people, he can do no wrong. He may have some human failings. So we should pray for him and not gossip about him. We should not judge an errant priest, we are told. Judgment should be left to God. Our cultural conditioning blames female survivors for abuse. She is the temptress. 
A survivor is made to feel that she is to blame. Woman's learned subordination to patriarchal authority cripples her response to various situations of oppression, especially in the area of sex and sexuality. Religious teaching on the position of a priest and woman's sexuality reinforce her feelings of guilt and consequent silence on sex abuse by priests. The victim is left confused and silent because she tries to reconcile her experience with her learned image of a priest. She feels it is her sin, not his. She has crossed the boundaries and suffers alone. This is being used to deny sexual abuse of women in the church, which is always termed as consensual sex. Is consensual sex possible between two persons of unequal power? No. In a multi-religious country like India is, the priest has a respectable standing in society and is the face of the church. Speaking out against a priest spoils the name of the church in society, we are told. Since Christians are min a minority in India, we are careful to protect the good name of the church. All these factors influence the silence around sexual abuse of women and even children. Women on the Line You're listening to Kat McPhillips, a left-wing Catholic theologian currently based at the University of Newcastle. It's the... The Me Too movement, I think, has had a profound effect on um, a number of groups that have been finding it very difficult to find their voice. And I think the nuns, well, the nuns too movement, like, it's very small. Um, and I think it's been very difficult for women religious to disclose. Uh, it's been incredibly shameful um, and traumatising. And, and we know from the work of the Royal Commission that for a survivor to come forward and disclose their abuse is a kind of re-traumatisation. It's, it's a really difficult thing to do. So um, I can imagine that for women religious who have, have had to be aligned with the church and, and even defending the church, representing the church, um, that this would be an immensely difficult thing to do. But I suspect that the numbers of women religious who have been sexually harassed, abused and raped is quite high. Yes. And the Royal Commission suggested that although the abuse of sexual abuse of children was widespread, the sexual abuse of women in the Catholic Church is likely to be four times as much as that of children. So there will be thousands of women in Australia alone who've had the experience of being sexually abused by clerics yeah. across, you know, the last century. And we have a responsibility as a society to give space to addressing that. And the reality is that canon law is not changing to address sexual abuse significantly and criminal law, um, you know, state-organized state criminal law is really what's making changes. And, you know, mm. this is where the very recent conviction of Cardinal Pell comes into play mm. uh, through the criminal system, certainly not through the church. Um, what is yeah. the significance of this, do you think, to Catholicism in Australia? It's 
hugely significant. It, it's the most senior Catholic in the country and he's fallen. And um, he himself has been found guilty of the very crimes that he says that he abhors. So what kind of hypocrisy is that? Um, that's just kind of a craziness. And um, he, I think it's a game changer. It's going to change the way it, it was going to further delegitimate the church. It's standing um, as a sort of like um, moral beacon um, in society, which it has uh, been its role, is in tatters. And um, I think it's going to find it very difficult to recover from this. Uh, from I've been, from everything that I've heard and seen over the last, you know, hasn't even been a week yet. Um, from everything I've, I've seen and heard, people are. Catholics are angry, they feel betrayed, um, and they, their sort of, you know, trust of the church has diminished even further. They're worried about the safety of their children. Um, I think survivors feel devastated, absolutely gutted that, you know, he was a person that they trusted to address the issue, has himself now been found guilty of child abuse. And globally... Um, I think it's just had a huge impact in it. The timing of it was incredible because it was just after the Vatican summit. So it was like the Vatican summit was an attempt to address um, child sexual abuse in the church and here was one of the most senior Catholics in the world. Um, and, and, and there'll be more. I mean, one of the really big issues is that public inquiries... Um, into child sexual abuse in the church have been held across Europe, Canada, um, US and Australia, New Zealand and the UK. But so far there have been no inquiries in Africa or in Asia. So there are huge Catholic populations in um, those continents and it's highly likely that there has been widespread child sexual abuse and general sexual abuse and the church is presenting themselves as addressing the issue with the recent Vatican summit on sex abuse. Um, and, you know, certain apologies have been made to certain communities. The general feeling is that there's a lot of hypocrisy and a lot of continued abuse of the faithful. And example of the spiritual abuse you were speaking about earlier, that mm. um, the Pope recently said that a critic of the church is a friend of the devil. Um mm. How do you feel that um, will impact on victims? Well, it already has. I mean, when he made that statement, I mean, he does, he tends to make these kind of unfortunate statements, um, which indicates that he doesn't really understand the issue. Um, but when he, when he did say that, that was a sort of like for survivors in particular, um, uh, and particularly those survivors who've been at the forefront of trying to address this issue and call the church to accountability, that was an awful thing to say, um, to assume that anyone who's critical of the church is working with the devil. I mean, um, people have tried to sort of contextualise it by saying, oh, that's a cultural comment that he's making and so on and so on. But I think he he's the Pope and he... You know, he speaks to the global church, so he knows what he's saying. And I think um, 
yes, that was a very, very unfortunate thing for him to say. And I think he would have lost a lot of trust as survivors when mm. he said that. And it's a continued type of spiritual abuse. It is a form of spiritual abuse indeed. And, you know, one of the sort of forms of trauma that kind of goes, um, is, that doesn't get much daylight is spiritual trauma. And um, a lot of people who are abusing religious organisations have spoken about the impact that sexual abuse has had on their spiritual lives and development. And it's been devastating when you think about the importance of faith and spirituality um, to a lot of people to lose that um, is a really difficult thing. It take, it's, it's like losing part of your identity, part of yourself. Um, it's interesting, though, that in, in the sort of the way that the church has responded to child sexual abuse, it's, it's primarily seen it as having sort of psychological and emotional outcomes rather than spiritual outcomes. It's tended to, to avoid that, which is very unfortunate. Um, but it is an area that we're really not addressing. Yeah. And the focus even at the Vatican Summit in the opening speech was um, an attempt by the Pope to mm. kind of contextualise child sex abuse in the broader community, thereby yeah. taking away some of the responsibility of the yeah. institutional that's nature right. of the abuse in the Catholic Church. And that's really where a lot of the clash and a lot of the disharmony about how to move forward sits. I mean, that was pretty much the first speech he gave where he was saying that child sexual abuse is a problem across the world and lots of institutions, not just the Catholic Church. And, you know, we have to see it as sort of like a failure of, of um, humankind, etc., etc. Um, but he, he then didn't go on to say, and we also have a very particular problem in the Catholic Church and we have to understand it. So by not going on and saying that, he was kind of deflecting responsibility. Yeah. So for dealing with the specificity of abuse in the Catholic Church. And, and we know that the Catholic Church of all institutions across the globe um, has a significant problem with sexual abuse um, of children, of vulnerable adults, of seminarians, of women. So um, it needs... You know, you have to understand what we talked about this already, but you have to understand what it is about that institution that makes children and and um, other vulnerable groups um, open to risk of harm. And he he wasn't able to say that he wasn't able to admit to that responsibility. And uh, in in doing so, um, I think he missed a great opportunity. And that was insider researcher Kat McPhillips. Earlier in the show, you heard Doris Wagner of the Nuns 2 movement and Virginia Saldana of the Ecclesia of Women in Asia, speaking as part of Voices of Faith, a global initiative that seeks to empower and advocate for women in leadership and decision-making roles within the Catholic Church. Thanks to Voices of Faith for permission to use their audio. Voices of Faith are running a global campaign, Overcoming Silence, Check out their website where you can take a one-minute action for change and unity at overcomingsilence.com. Women on the Line is a national women's current affairs program made for community radio. 
It's produced and presented by a range of women broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation.